Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Apostle Paul's letter written to the Colossians, where we will be looking together at the third chapter of Colossians, reading verses 1 through 11. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And beloved, this morning we are, of course, celebrating one of the most memorable, powerful, hope-filled moments in all of redemptive history. And I want to tell you, I've come to truly love this day of remembrance in the church of Jesus Christ that we refer to as Easter. Because the joy of God's people is always tangible on this day. I can remember very early on in my Christian life at the little church that Bianca and I attended when we first became Christians in our hometown. And on Easter Sunday, the people would always come in and greet one another with that joyful declaration, He is risen. And the refrain would echo from the one being greeted, He is risen indeed. We were talking about it in the office just this morning. He is risen indeed. What a glorious proclamation. Far above the wonderful traditions that we have here of the always delicious breakfast that I will fight to return to next year, I hope. Far above the joyful faces of adorable children dressed up in their Easter best. Far above the many things that we all enjoy doing on this particular day is the fact that we are all here this morning and we are all celebrating, we are all filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit because the Lord Jesus Christ rose triumphant over sin, death, and the devil. Indeed, He arose. Beloved, it is the exclamation point on the work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. And so, though we enjoy all of those things, and we certainly should, beloved, if we do not pause to consider something like the power of this resurrection, then all of these things are robbed of the very real meaning behind them. We must understand the significance of the events that surrounded the life, the death, and the resurrection. Of Jesus Christ. And so once again, we are continuing to look at some of those common questions that seem to always surround the cross of Jesus Christ, questions that were in fact asked and answered by the authors of our own Heidelberg Catechism. We've considered many of these questions over the last several years. Questions like, The one we looked at just a couple of nights ago, Friday night. Why did Jesus Christ, the God-man, God incarnate, why did He have to suffer? We've asked why it was that Jesus Christ had to indeed be both fully God and fully man. Why did the Messiah have to have two natures? We've looked at why it was that Jesus Christ had to live out His suffering to the worst possible end of all suffering. And that He had to physically lose His life. Why did Jesus Christ have to die? Why was His death necessary? 
We've talked many times about the benefits that you and I have received as the direct result of Jesus Christ's death upon the cross. And so this morning, I would like to ask the next question that I think proceeds from all of these. That question is actually number 45 in our Heidelberg Catechism, which we just looked at this morning. Having laid out very definitively for the reader of the Catechism both the necessary cause or the reason for the death of Jesus Christ, as well as the further benefits received by the one who has embraced Jesus Christ by faith and has been united with Jesus in his death, the authors of the Catechism now turn their focus from what we would refer to as the humiliation of Jesus Christ, which consisted of things like his humble birth, his lifetime of suffering, and his death, they now turn their attention to his exaltation or his glorification. And that is his resurrection, his his ascension, and his session at the right hand of the Father. And so they ask this very critical question. What benefit do we, that is you and I, what benefit do we receive from the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I want you to listen to the answer again. First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, that he might make us partakers of the righteousness which he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we are also raised up to to a new life. And third, the resurrection of Christ is to us a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Beloved, it's pretty straightforward. What are the benefits of the resurrection? Well, there are three of them mentioned here in the catechism. The first two we've looked at before in answering some of those questions surrounding both the necessity and the benefits of the death of Jesus Christ. He, through his own resurrection, his own escape from the clutches of death, has given all of the evidence that could ever be needed to sufficiently speak to his merit and his qualification to be our Redeemer. Jesus Christ, being, by being raised from the dead, has perfectly satisfied for all of our sin. Had Jesus even left one single sin of his elect unatoned for, he would have had to have been kept under the power and the dominion of death as one who dies and is not raised in power triumphant over death itself. He would have failed to do what he came to do if indeed he did not rise. However, we have seen very clearly through the revelation of God and Holy Scripture that death could not not contain him. He has defeated death and along with it, he has stripped Satan of his power. Jesus Christ overcame death, and he did it by the power of the resurrection. Secondly, the catechism says that just as in his death we have have died, that is, our old man has died, so in his resurrection to life we have been given through his resurrection and through our union with him by faith a new life. We have been given resurrected life. The old is gone and we have been made new. 
We are those who by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ have been reborn, who have been renewed from death to life. Thirdly, the catechism makes it clear that the resurrection of Jesus Christ serves as a sure testimony, a certain promise, a sure pledge of our own future resurrection. In His resurrection, we have a sure pledge of our own which we can cling to. We can live in light of, to the glory of Almighty God by faith. Just as Jesus arose in His physical body, One day we too have the sure pledge that we also will be raised in glorified bodies. All three of these answers speak to one overarching element that I think that the church today all too often misses or at least fails to truly consider. And that is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a resurrection of power. Only Almighty God can give life to what is dead. Life does not by necessity revive itself. It is a supernatural work of Almighty God. And my hope this morning, beloved, is not just to remind you of these specific benefits that we certainly do receive because Jesus Christ arose from the dead but also in looking to the powerful Word of God to point out to you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is by necessity a resurrection of power. It does not leave the one who by the very Spirit of God has been made aware of its power and its effects left somehow unaffected. It transforms that one by the grace of God through the power of God from a life of indifference to sin to a life characterized by grateful obedience to the Word of God, born out of gratitude to God for our amazing salvation in Jesus Christ. We are transformed. We are made new. And we are, in the words of Jesus Christ Himself, born again to the glory of Almighty God. It's my desire to clear up for us this morning the effect of the powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ upon sinners like you and like me. So I'd like you to now look with me at the Apostle Paul's letter written to the Colossians. Again, chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Hear now the inerrant and infallible holy word of our Lord. Paul says, If then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now, you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, 
wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the wonderful opportunity that we have to come before your word this morning. Father, we pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds from all of those things that seek our attention, all of those things that distract us in this life. May we give our full undivided attention to your word this morning and hearing your word through the power of your spirit. May we be transformed by it more and more for your glory. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you might find yourself thinking this morning that when I said that the glorious power of God as evidenced in the resurrection of Jesus is something that I fear that the church today all too often misses or fails to think about properly, that I was going to be spending my time this morning sort of picking on modern day evangelicalism. Well, I want to assure you from the outset that's not the case. Though many mainline evangelical churches are certainly flawed when it comes to consideration of the effects of the resurrection upon us, I want to assure you that they are not alone in their wrongheadedness. We too, in the Reformed Church, I fear often fail to see the power of God, which is evidenced in something like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is an error that does not really know any denominational bounds. I sometimes wonder if we are not often guilty of becoming what we have been painted by so many in modern evangelical circles to be. Maybe not exactly in the way that we are often caricaturized to be, but somehow we have allowed for the idea that we can somehow just remain aloof or casual when it comes to sin, we've allowed that to sort of creep into our thinking. Let me clarify what I'm trying to say in this way. How is it that Calvinists or reform-minded people are often painted by those wishing to find fault with our explanations for the great glorious doctrines of grace? Well, at least one of the ways sounds something like this. You know, you Calvinists, you just want to have your cake and to eat it too. You want to be Christian in name, but not in conduct. I mean, after all, you guys believe that once you are saved, you are always saved. So why even bother fighting against sin in this life? God's grace is big enough for you to sin. You can continue to just rest in Christ. Surely, beloved, I'm not the only one here who has heard this kind of line of attack from those opposed to what I would say have always been the orthodox doctrines of grace. And of course, we would all say that it's an unwarranted, 
perhaps even unfair mischaracterization of what it is that we truly believe, or at least I should say what we truly confess. We would not say that we could go on living in sin so that grace may abound. The Apostle Paul covered that sufficiently in places like Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Right? May it never be. Do not even suggest such a thing. But my fear is that though we know that that is not what we believe, too often we become confused about how we as believers are then to live. What are the effects of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior, upon my life and my conduct? If we're not careful, we begin to label any type of careful notice of sin in our lives or any attempt to fight against sin in our lives as mere legalism. And so having started by defending the doctrines of grace, we end up accepting just a portion of the truth of the Word of God and we fail to understand it in its entirety. It is as if The resurrection of Jesus proves, in fact, who he was. But according to some, somehow remains powerless in our own lives. Powerless over sin in the lives of his children. As if he died so that he could defeat the power of sin, death, and the devil simply for himself. But not for you and I. But the Apostle Paul here in the text before us this morning speaks in no such way. He ties the benefits of the powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ directly to those of us who truly belong to him. And it sounds nothing like casual. It sounds nothing like aloofness when it comes to the consideration of the effects or the benefits that we reap because of this resurrection that we celebrate this morning. He says, if you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. He's speaking to the church here, beloved. He's speaking to the church invisible, the church as God sees it, and he's telling us, set your minds on things above. I think there's something crucial we have to see here. You'll notice throughout this section, in fact, really throughout this entire chapter, that the Apostle Paul will use a lot of these parallel statements. And he's building a complete picture here of life in Jesus Christ by faith. He says, those who have died with Christ, verse 3, will be raised with Christ, verse 1. We are to put off the old man, verse 9, and we are to put on the new man, in verse 10. The important thing to note about all of these things is that they are all tied to what preceded this chapter in chapter 2, in verses 6 and 7, which read as follows. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. 
You understand, Paul does not talk about our obedience to the word of God or our outward behavior in this life. He does not even begin painting the complete picture until he has first described the redemption and the means of that redemption that Almighty God has poured out upon us as his people. Before Paul can establish any discussion whatsoever of obedience or the way in which we ought now to live, he first establishes that there is an absolute prerequisite that must be in place before it can even be considered. As you have received Christ, so walk in Him. The first step in understanding how we are to live our lives in obedience is to understand that any shred of obedience that we may have is the direct result of the grace of Almighty God being poured out upon the one who belongs to Him through Jesus Christ. We are rooted and established by faith in Jesus Christ first. We are built up by faith through which we are brought into union with Jesus Christ, union with His life, Union with his death and union with his blessed resurrection. Do you understand? We have died to the flesh and its curse with him through this union. We now live anew because of and through this same union with Jesus Christ by faith. And our, up, our upright walk will not be the fruit of our good intentions. It will not be produced by our trying with all of our strength to prove ourselves. It is the fruit of thanksgiving for the one who by the grace of Almighty God through the power of the Holy Spirit illuminating for us the resurrected Christ, that one abounds in obedience. Beloved, we have to see that here. Paul's instructions for us to move towards good behavior, towards obedience, come after he has established our redemption in Jesus Christ and our union with him in power. Obedience is the response to the grace of Almighty God given to sinners like us, but never the means of our getting that grace. That's the distinction. Beloved, I trust you see the difference between those two things. The former is the only way to live in peace and comfort and rest and joy, knowing that you belong to Jesus Christ and that belonging to Jesus Christ, you have been made new. You have been given powerful, blessed, resurrected life in Jesus Christ. The latter will only lead you to legalism, where you will strive and strive and strive, and you will never find that peace because you are seeking it outside of the power of of the resurrected Christ. But it's not so for the one who has been placed in union with Christ by grace through faith. And Paul continues to touch upon that union. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, For you died with him, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Again, notice that our union with Christ is even here the prerequisite to any discussion of obedience. Then Paul begins to name some of the things that we are to put to death in our lives because of our thankfulness to God. 
which is the result of that union. And he names sins like fornication and uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. Paul says that all these things reside in those who by nature of their not being in union with Jesus Christ are sons of disobedience. Who you all were at one time, but remember, you have been made new. You have been given powerful, resurrected life in Jesus Christ through the power of his resurrection. The old man is dead. And the new man lives by the grace of God through the powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is a far cry from remaining aloof when it comes to our sin. Paul says that we are to recognize it, we are to put it to death by the only means possible. By the grace of God giving to us true faith and the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, but I want to tell you, I've come to really dislike the attitude of some when it comes to talking about their sin. Maybe you've heard it before, or maybe you, like me, have probably said it before. You know, you know me, the chief of sinners, no one's a bigger sinner than me. Chuckling and smiling almost always alongside of that acknowledgement as if this was Paul's attitude when he acknowledged his own sin through his tears. Thank goodness for Christ, because I, I sure make a mess of everything, right? You get the drift. It's not that it's not true. It's just not funny. And please understand that I'm not talking about someone here who's truly broken by their sin. If any of these statements were made from a heart that truly is sorry for their sin, evidenced not only by their level of sorrow for what they had done, but their sincere desire to turn away from it, then we would all praise God for it. But when someone speaks of their sin as if it's really no big deal, as if it's the kind of thing that can just be easily blown off because of the work of Jesus Christ, I always want to sit them down and explain to them that Jesus Christ died for that sin. That sin could only be atoned for through the spilling of the blood of the precious Son of God. He suffered unimaginable physical agony because of that sin. His blood mingled with the ground as a direct result of that sin. And if his death, which was the direct result of that sin, is able to just be shrugged off, then brothers and sisters in Christ, we've not even begun to glimpse the power and the glory of this resurrection that we're here to celebrate this morning. If we cannot fathom the tragic cause of his death, how will we ever see the true glory that surrounds his resurrection? You understand. Paul points out our union with Christ. He makes clear the implications of that union with his death and the death of our old man. And by the power of his resurrection, he not only defeats death, but he gives us new resurrected life. We are raised with him. Paul continues here about what we are to put to death in our life. And he names specific sins that are to be turned from when we are made aware of them by the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And again, 
You must understand that this is not Paul giving a a list of rules and calling the keeping of those rules salvation. He spent a great deal of time, much like Jesus Christ himself did, battling against legalistic asceticism. He's not calling us to that here. But he does here call upon Christians. He calls upon all of us who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have been made aware of our union with Jesus Christ to fight sin in this life and to become in our conduct what we already are in principle, dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see any clarity coming to the importance of our approach to the sin that I promise you is involved in all of our lives? Do you consider your sin to be of no big matter? Can you just easily brush it aside? Consider it as if it's no big deal. Do you think of your sins as being little when measured up against the sins of those less savory ones that you know? Respectable sins. Beloved, if you are, you are using as a measure of righteousness something that is completely foreign to the Word of God. God does not ever use your neighbor as a measure of your righteousness. You want to know what he uses? The answer is terrifying. He uses himself. That's what God measures you by. Do you still think that you might be better than most or some? Are you grieved by your sin? Or have you fallen into the foolishness of unbelief that says, let us just continue in sin that grace may abound? He continues to list out the things that we are to put to death in our bodies. And beloved, I can tell you, at least for myself, this list is convicting. It leaves no one untouched. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, lying. Paul says, put them off and put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Then verse 12, Paul begins to name some of the aspects of the new man. And you can see that they are all things that are associated with the life that is rooted in Jesus Christ, being empowered by the Holy Spirit and manifested in the fruits of thanksgiving. Look at what they are. Things like mercy, kindness, and humility, and meekness, and patience, and forgiveness. All traits that find their perfect form in, one, in, in the one whose image we have been created in. The image of Almighty God. We are being transformed in this life slowly, often painfully, into the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as that image is restored, we realize whose image it is that we bear. And distinctions begin to fade away for the children of God. You understand, there's no longer any Greek or Jew. There's no longer any circumcised or uncircumcised, no longer any barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ in whose image we are being conformed into is all and in all. 
Our life is in Jesus Christ through resurrected power. Beloved, if your life is in Jesus, then according to the Apostle Paul, according to Almighty God, you may never simply brush aside sin in your life when you see it. We are called to repent and to run to Jesus Christ and be comforted that even though we are like we are, He died and He arose to make us free in Him. Free to love. Free to be kind. Free to be merciful. Free to be grateful. Free to edify. And build up one another. You've been called to a life characterized by grateful obedience. You are raised to new life in Jesus Christ. And all the sin so common in the sons of disobedience belong with them and not with you. Life in Jesus Christ is never a justification for your anger. For the maliciousness of gossip for holding yourself on some kind of pedestal, for condescension towards others who do not share your personal bugaboos. You, through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, have received all that is necessary for this life of obedience. Faith, the gift of God through His Holy Spirit, in Jesus Christ, and union with Him in His death, and in his resurrected life. The resurrection truly is the pinnacle of our Christian existence. It is the event that marks a change in the life of the redeemed. Because Jesus arose, we have ample testimony to his merit to be our Savior. He said he would arise from death, and beloved, praise God, he did. Because Jesus was resurrected, he ascended to the Father, and even right now, he sits at the right hand of the Father and lives to make intercession for us. Beloved, because he lives, we have an advocate with the Father. Because Jesus Christ rose from death, we've been given that promised gift of a helper, the one whom Jesus promised to send after he left this world following his resurrection to take his place in session at the right hand of the Father. That helper was given on the day of Pentecost, the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And it's through that promised Spirit that our redemption and all of its glorious benefits are accomplished and applied in our lives. Because Jesus Christ was resurrected from death in power, you and I can live with the confidence that we have a sure pledge that we too will one day be resurrected, even as we live in resurrected power right now. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we have the consummation of all of his benefits, And beloved, by the grace of God, we will see the glorification of his church. But brothers and sisters in Christ, the benefit that I would most like to leave on your mind this morning is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was an absolute act of power over life and death. And it was accomplished to bring glory to Almighty God in and through Jesus Christ. And that glory is brought about by His conforming His members, the church, 
into his own glorious image and new resurrected life. He is sustaining us with the precious spirit of Almighty God. By the grace of God, through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, beloved, we have been made new. And so we flee from the sin that so easily entangles us in this life. By the power of the Holy Spirit who was sent to help us by the resurrected Christ in order to mold us more and more into his own glorious image. Let your thankful heart shine in putting to death your flesh and silencing its worthless justifications of your sin. Let us live this life in resurrection power to the glory of Almighty God. Amen. Let's pray.